Welcome back to Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast all about the importance of the clothes we wear. I'm your host, Belle, and in today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Isabella Rosner, textile historian, curator of the Royal School of Needlework, and a research consultant for Whitney Antiques. She is also the host of the So What podcast. She also runs the Instagram page at Historic Embroidery, and this is how I found Isabella and decided that she definitely needed to be a guest on the podcast as she has done so many exciting things in the world of embroidery. In this episode we chat all about the history of hand embroidery needlework both in textiles and in fashion, in shoes and on dresses and in samplers, particularly in America and the UK. So if that's something you're interested in or something you think hmm, I don't know much about this then keep listening and I hope you enjoy this wonderful interview with Dr Isabella Rosner. Welcome, Isabella, to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. I thought to start off with, you can just introduce yourself, your current role, your background in the world of textiles and embroidery, and tell us a little bit about your own podcast. Sure. Thank you, Belle, for having me on today. I'm really excited. Um, my name is Isabella Rosner. I guess I can say I'm Dr. Isabella Rosner, although mm. it's currently kind of like the gray area where I can't quite tell like, can I say it before my degree is conferred? Hard to say. <laughs> I think yes. Um, who am I? I am uh, the curator of the Royal School of Needlework and mm-hmm. a research consultant at Whitney Antiques, which houses Britain's largest stock of antique needlework. It's amazing. I'm biased, obviously, but <laughs> ever in Oxfordshire, oh my God, if you are interested in embroidery, you gotta go. Wow, right? okay. It's amazing. I feel very, very lucky to have both of these roles. And in them, I uh, am lucky enough to work with a lot of historical objects. I just recently finished my PhD, which is why the doctor thing is currently kind of contentious. So I've Mm -hmm. made a recent move from academia back to the museums that I love. And my history with embroidery is kind of a long, I was going to say winding journey. It is not. It's kind of like a straight and narrow path. But it's kind of a long story, so I won't really bore you with that now. But it's been a long time coming, my interest and love of historic embroidery. I think it's just one of the best ways to capture and understand the lives of people who are oftentimes really hidden and hard to find in the historical record. People Mm. who are oftentimes anonymous people, you know, women and girls and people who aren't necessarily rich, who aren't necessarily white, all of these people who have identities that mean that they are not oftentimes the people at the forefront of the the written record. Mm-hmm. I think needlework is a brilliant way of finding those people. That is kind of why I do this embroidery thing. It's I, I stitch myself. That's how I came to all of this. But I think <laughs> historical embroidery is now my entire life, which is very <laughs> exciting. It's my jobs. It's what I... It's what I research. It's what I write about. It's what I speak about. It's what I have a podcast about. The podcast is called So What? It's about historical embroidery, obviously. Great title. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Shout out to some friend during COVID came up with it. I cannot remember who it was, but I love them. (laughs) I love a pun and it was just the best. Mm -hmm. But like you, my podcast came out of the pandemic, out of 
you know, a desperate need to engage with stuff, with mm-hmm. stories, with people. And I think it's all my love of historic embroidery has kind of culminated into being this, I don't know, brand of me just talking all the time about historic embroidery. And I feel very, very, very lucky to have that life because I think these objects, these stories are incredibly important and cool and beautiful and interesting. And it's just such a treat to be just one tiny cog in the large kind of machine of, of recognizing the glory of needlework. I love that. I, I really want to learn more about um, needlework and embroidery because, yeah, I've seen so many people start posting about it and putting things up. And it's something I was always sort of loosely interested in. But I feel like it's having a bit of a um, renaissance at the moment. And lots of people are starting to I don't know. It's just something I've noticed. Yes, <laughs> so. it's very. I think COVID did a lot. I think that it was the perfect activity for a lockdown because it's mm. slow. It's solitary you don't need to be around other people but you can find yourself in this community of stitchers it's Mm -hmm. deliberate and there's kind of a peacefulness that comes with the repetition I think that also as and I'm sure you've noticed this as well like historic dress is so popular Mm -hmm. which we love but as historic (laughs) dress becomes more and more popular people are, are kind of thinking more about what are things that are kind of a bit more adjacent to historical dress Mm -hmm. what's happening with textiles what's happening with design at large and I think the larger interest in historic costume has meant that there's more attention being paid to historical embroidery. More of the minutia of it rather than the kind of the broader. broader Yes. And I, as a, as a details person, who's not very good at the macro at the big picture. (laughs) Sure. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. (laughs) So how did you first become like interested in historic embroidery? What sparked your passion immediately I feel like everyone who's really interested in something specific like this has like a moment that they can think back to okay so when I said (laughs) my journey was very much a straight and narrow path it really was just kind of one thing after another so I grew up in Los Angeles uh an only child before Ubers so I found that I was a pretty lonely teen Mm. I'm very grateful to my parents who were extremely generous with their time in driving me to other to other places but when no one was available to drive me or when I didn't have plans I was home alone and I was bored and so Mm. I started reading classical classic novels um Jane Austen all the Bronte sisters stuff because an English teacher had us read one of those a month and that kind of launched something huge in my brain and I started watching the adaptations, the mm-hmm. miniseries, the films. And I, as someone who was always interested in fashion, saw what they were wearing and was like, oh, wait, people <laughs> in the past also wore clothes? Like, this is the bit reason- I like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For some reason, my brain, I just had never, there's not a lot of very visible history in LA. And I'm wondering if that's part of it, but there was just never, it was never part of my brain, never part of my understanding of the past, I guess. So seeing that stuff launched me hugely into the world of historic dress. And then from there, I was like, I'm going to be a costume designer. I want something that mixes together research and creativity. I did some internships in film and TV and found that that was not the right mix for me. Mm. Costume design was not giving me what I wanted. Um, But I was lucky enough to get an internship at the Nantucket Historical Association. And I apologize for how long this answer is, but I think we're getting somewhere. No, no. (laughs) Thank you. At the Nantucket Historical Association, I was tasked with interning at a house where they taught 
historic arts and crafts classes. And one mm-hmm. of the people I met there was a woman named Edie Borier, and she was the assistant to Erica Wilson, who was hugely influential in the world of embroidery in the mid-20th century. Edie Borier mm-hmm. sat me down. She knew I was interested in fashion. She knew I was kind of interested in dress and historical stuff. And she said, do you know what a sampler is? And I said, no, I do not. She said, <laughs> I play what a sampler is. And even better than that, I'm going to show you a sampler from Nantucket. Nantucket is this tiny island off the coast of Massachusetts. She said, I want to show you a sampler from Nantucket. And I'm going to tell you how we can identify that as a Nantucket sampler. Mm-hmm. She shows me a sampler, which is essentially a piece of linen or another piece of fabric upon which someone would practice their embroidery stitches. It's basically kind of like a CV of your needlework skills and your stitching practice. And this was all by girls, right? She sits me down, she shows me the sampler and she points to a tree and she said, this is how you can identify a sampler as being made in Nantucket. And it was a specific tree motif that appears on almost all Nantucket samplers. And that motif does not appear on samplers outside of Nantucket. And I, that was the moment that you're talking about, that one moment of like like, (laughs) exploding in my brain, because I was like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Not only are you showing me this art made by girls who are my age or a bit younger, these girls who I think about all the time, but kind of haven't been able to to access Mm -hmm. their stuff before. Not only are you showing me that, but you are telling me that through this object, I can learn about this person who has been gone for hundreds of years. For some reason, actually, no, I know the reason. The genealogical aspect of a sampler lit my world on fire. Because <laughs> I've always been so interested in stories. And the fact that I could do this sort of detective work through an object and find someone at the other side of that, on the other side of that research Mm. was mind blowing to me. So it was that Nantucket tree motif and the realization that girls and women were involved in textiles and needlework specifically. And that through that, I could find more about them than this object itself told me that was everything. Sorry, that was a really long answer. No, I love it. You hear that a lot about, you know, history, but particularly fashion history. It's like detective work almost. Like you're like solving a mystery. And, you know, I think that everyone likes that kind of little element, you know, and it's just exciting just weaving things together and being like, I found some secret I found in this tree. (laughs) Yes, because I think we're all people who love a puzzle. And I don't know about you, but like I am kind of, I was at one point really into true crime. I liked mm-hmm. the Titanic. I liked all these things mm-hmm. that you kind of had to piece together the the pieces mm-hmm. in order to understand what was happening. And I think that textiles and dress are really good for that. Yeah, because they've got like a human element to them that a lot of other things don't have. You know, you can have birth records, death records, which is you know I suppose at its core quite human, but they're also quite cold in a way because it's just the mm. facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something about you know clothes and textiles and samplers and things that like has a lot of like that person in it and I think that's that's what attached me to being interested in fashion history it's cool that you can have it in like something like a sampler as well but it's still textiles it all loops around I think one of the things that's so beautiful and you said it already like one of the best parts of studying textiles and dress and this sort of stuff is that no matter where you look within these objects and within these stories it all leads back to people 
Mm-hmm. And at my core, I am just a person who loves stories and who loves learning about people. So the fact that no matter kind of what research avenue I can take while studying an object, it, the fact that it will lead me, lead me to a person, to a place, to a group of people, an organization, that feels so rich because yeah, totally. it, it just feels like that thread through time, that mm. human connection. Yeah. And like the personality and yeah, I don't know, just that connection, like you said, is just, I don't know, it makes it more interesting. The broad stuff is cool, but it doesn't feed my soul in the same way as oh. like learning about lived experiences, you know, that's Agreed. the best part. And I mean, samplers, I'm just going to obviously fly that sampler flag everywhere all the time because yeah. I'm, I love them. But samplers are so good for that because they are these documents that relay so much information about a girl or about her teacher and mm. the mix of those two people, you know, you'll get not only her name and often her age and the year in which she worked her sampler, but you will get, you know, the verses that she had access to either through like her teacher's speech or through books that she had access to. You'll get this knowledge of uh, the motif variety. Did her teacher choose those? Did she choose those? Mm. Was that shit that she's depicting here a result of the fact that she lives near the coast? You know, you get all of these mm. little hints at a whole life. Do you know much about samplers in the UK? Because I know they're quite a big American thing, but are they were they just as big here? Okay, so I know, I would say I probably know more about samplers in the UK than in the US. Oh, okay. Make the same. I'm, I'm such a little sampler creep. Um, <laughs> so, so samplers are really popular in America because they started off really early on, right? In the yeah. earliest days of white settlement, people were stitching samplers and there's a lot of pride in the tradition. Mm-hmm. But that tradition came from England. And oh, okay. so, oh yeah. So people, girls here were stitching all of the time. They are, there are many, 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 many samplers that survive from England from the very end of the 16th century to the 20th century. And there, I would say there are probably more of them that survive than in the U.S., but they have received less specific attention because I think because England had more going on in the 17th century when it came to art mm. and when it came to craft and the work of people's hands. In America, when people are just moving to this new land, things are pretty sparse. But what comes up quite quickly is this need to stitch. Mm. So I think England is less preoccupied with this idea of stitching of a stitch-based schoolgirl tradition in scholarship than Americans are. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because I know like embroidery and needlework was popular in the UK, but I wasn't sure if it was in the same way, you know, We're in the form of a sampler. It. Yes. It's kind of quite interesting. I need to look into it now. <gasps> boy, oh boy, do I have recommendations for you. Wow, yes. <laughs> you sparked <Yeah>. the interest. <laughs> it's just, a, it's so, it's such a rich world. I will say, mm-hmm. sorry, speaking of recommendations, there's this book called Girlhood Embroidery mm-hmm. by this woman named Betty Ring, who in the in 1993 published this two-part series, basically cataloging at that point every known American schoolgirl needlework group. Huge. Wow. Massive okay. books. And that book, you know, that has not yet happened in England, probably partially because it's just a huge undertaking. But mm. that same level of connection between girls, between teachers in the same place and, you know, through shared businesses of their families, all that sort of stuff. Those same connections fuel girlhood stitch in this country as well, mm. in England. It's, and visually mapping those connections is a really, really interesting undertaking. Yeah. 
Very cool. Okay, new interest sparked. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned that it sort of was quite a 17th to maybe like 19th century thing. Mm. Um, Are there any specific time periods that you are drawn to when it comes to embroidery? And is it that time period because of these samplers? Or is there, you know, another time period that also has a big connection to embroidery needlework that you feel connected to? So, okay, it's well, it's interesting that I just leaned back. Nobody in the in listening can hear this, can see this, but like I just leaned back and got a glimpse of my tattoo, which is a piece of 17th century embroidery. Okay. And that's cool. interesting because my answer is 17th century embroidery, specifically what some people call the golden age of English embroidery. Mm-hmm. Um which is, I would say, at its most specific, the third quarter of the 17th century between approximately 1650 and 1675. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what is more loosely like, I guess I would constitute it as like the 1640s to the 1680s or 90s. It's Mm -hmm. this time period where needlework is being made on a scale that's kind of difficult to comprehend. There is so much that survives of it. And yet we just know that that's a tiny fraction of the amount of stuff that was made and embroidery was happening on different surfaces in Mm. different styles in a, in a really intriguing way. So basically this is the advent, not, it's not the first time it happens, but it's, it's the first time it really explodes in the way that it does of stump work, raised work, Mm. which is three dimensional embroidery, embroidery. And that's embroidered human figures, animals, flowers, architectural structures, trees, all sorts of things. And this sort of three-dimensional embroidery, which was made basically by stuffing embroidery with, it could be hair, it could be wool, it could be wood, it could be kind of whatever thing you want to use to fill in this three-dimensional composition. These, These scenes, these figures, these motifs were appearing on things like embroidered cabinets and caskets, mirror surrounds, baskets, all sorts of things. There were embroidered nutmegs. There were tiny little needleworked bags that looked like frogs. (laughs) Those might have been a bit earlier, and I think they were, but it's all part of this larger world of this huge blossoming of stitch. And I think it's pretty hard to summarize why that's happening, but Mm. I understand it to be very, very simply a result of the fact that professional embroiderers lose their jobs during the Civil War. And what are they going to do? They need money. And so they're going to kind of shift their market to um, schoolgirls to Mm. because this is at the time where girls are being educated in, in an increasingly formal way. Girls who are wealthy enough of the middling sort or upper classes are being sent to school for their education. So all of a sudden you have the kind of confluence of professional embroiderers lose their jobs and girls are being educated in a more formal way. And what do you have? This amazing blossoming of mm. needlework with just, there's just so much stuff that's produced And it's so diverse. It involves not only these raised forms and sometimes these flat forms, but also things like mica, flakes of mica that are used to pretend to be, they're used as windows in tiny little depictions of buildings, of palaces and castles and homes. You have bits of coral that are used. You have these pearls, these tiny little pearls called seed pearls. You have beads that are being produced in Venice and Amsterdam. You have this... It's this huge meeting of 
so many factors of people becoming wealthier of this middle class kind of developing this mercantile middle class of global trade really blossoming. And all of these things come together to create just this amazing richness. And I think, sorry, this is such a ramble, but I'm going to keep going if that's okay. Yeah, no, keep going. I'm loving it. (laughs) Good. A lot of my interest comes from this cabinet, this embroidered box that would sit on a table that Mm -hmm. kind of unleashed everything for me. Again, it was one of my slightly later light bulb moments a few years after the the Nantucket sampler tree. Mm -hmm. In the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, I was interning there one summer and I was shown by a lovely uh, woman who was working in the costume and textile department, a 17th century cabinet covered in embroidery. And she said, I know you're really interested in this stuff, so I'd like to show it to you. She opens it, and there's a coat of arms on the inside. And I was Mm -hmm. like, that's interesting. I don't know much about this yet, but I don't think I'm used to seeing coats of arms in this sort of object. I did some research, and it is the coat of arms of a family called Perwich. And the Perwiches ran a school in Hackney, where I'm sat right now, hello, in the 17th century, and it was one of the finest girls' schools in the in the country. And I I did some research, and I found that this this cabinet, this embroidered box, was almost certainly worked at the school, and was perhaps worked by this their very famous daughter, who uh, was kind of known as a musical prodigy and as an incredibly talented needleworker. Mm-hmm. And that again exploded my brain, led to a bunch of different stuff because it made me realize. Not only is needlework an incredibly good way to get to know a maker in the world in which she lived, but also needlework can be a tool by which to understand much larger things. Through that, we can learn about these networks of girls and their teachers in this one neighborhood in London, outside mm-hmm. of London. How is imagery being disseminated? How are these ideas being passed around? What does it mean for this girl to be using these stitches in, in, at this time and this imagery? It was kind of like that meme that's really popular from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where it's like a really crazy guy in front of the board that has mm-hmm. all the things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that was me. That continued to be me. Yeah. Kind of this period, this golden age of embroidery in the 17th century is such a fascinating and beautiful and kind of overwhelming confluence of so many factors that led to a huge explosion of needlework. And what is so important to that other than the beauty of it and the complexity is that the vast majority of stuff that was being made in that period was by girls. Mm. It's this world of girlhood and teenaged ephemera, material culture. It's the work of their hands and it survives in a way that very little uh, needlework from other periods just, it just survives much more in much Mm. greater numbers. And there's, I would say, a, a hugely impressive variety. It's so interesting. And I like what you say about girlhood and teenagehood because I think they are a group of people, group of girls that get forgotten in some of these narratives. You know, I I can't think of many 17th century girls that sort of get weaved into the stories. You know, the only I can think of in the Tudors, you know, Jane Grey and people like that. But they're like, they're not really people. They're kind of just pawns and like whatever's happening around them. So, you know, it's, yeah, that's really cool and interesting to have this group of people who have a bit of a voice when otherwise maybe, you know, they're not really part of the the wider narrative. It rocks. And it is one of those things that it's one of these times where 
textiles kind of outrun costume because mm. you don't have childhood or teenage clothing that survives in huge numbers because obviously you're going to these things are being passed on they're falling into pieces after mm. a certain amount of use those items for the most part clothing for teens were not designed to be decorative pieces that were meant to yeah. be treasured there are examples of that obviously but for so much of this embroidery in this period, the work of these teens' hands was these were exercises in skill, in taste, in education. So they were they were meant to not be used. Mm. Not exclusively, but loads of objects that survive from that time were meant to be displayed. So they survive in great numbers in comparison mm. to clothes. Interesting. And also, yeah, you find like, you had children's clothes and you had adult clothes. Mm. You know, everyone always says the teenager arrived in the 50s, right? So in, you do see that in history, particularly with clothes. You know, you would just get to a certain age and then you're just wearing adult's clothes. The, the, dis, the distinguishing doesn't really happen so much. So there's probably another reason for that, you know. It's yes. like, it, it, how do you distinguish between what was worn by a 14-year-old girl and a 30-year-old woman? They don't really because they would have been wearing the same thing for the most Definitely. part. And even at that point, like you couldn't really, you couldn't really feel the teenager dumb of that yeah. clothing. <laughs> With this embroidery, one of the things that I think is so special about it is these, so many of these pieces are just oozing being a teenage girl. That's you so know, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Some of it is simply like, oh, this stitcher depicted a rainbow in the exact same way a preteen girl today. There are also things like Valentine's with bleeding hearts on them. You know, like there's a I was going to say a level of drama, but I don't think that's necessarily right. I think it's well, <laughs> there's yeah, I mean, that is a level of drama. True. <laughs> like, there is a humanity to it. And there you can really just feel that these were young women, you know, teenage girls who were just trying to figure things out and doing mm. their best and dealing with a lot of life that is different than the life we live now in the 21st century, but also dealing with a lot of stuff that was exactly the same as it is now. Yeah. I mean, they still had emotions, probably hormones, you know, there's lots of things biologically that wouldn't have wouldn't be massively different to what we experience now. I mean, probably a little bit. We don't, it's hard to know that kind of thing really, isn't it? People didn't really understand it, but there's nothing to say that it was massively different, you know? No. And I think that it's, it's the thing we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, right? It's the human Mm. connection. Mm, It's that thread that draws you to this person who lived hundreds of years ago. And I think Mm. that the very apparent teenaged elements of this stuff mm-hmm. is one of the, the the things that appeals most to me because I too was a teenaged girl <laughs> and I relate so much to 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 the the manifestation of those feelings that you can see in stitch stitching rainbows and bleeding hearts and you know love, to see it. love it <laughs> cute Iconic. cats and things yeah. like that you know yes. <laughs> it's so so teenage I love that I've never so even good. considered that but you're so right when you look at these pieces I've seen a few you know before it's always what's important to them as well you know, it's not, it's mm. within their little lived experience, the things that are most important within that, they will depict on it. And I think that's really cute as well. It shows the level of, yeah, emotion and humanness in Absolutely. there. And the level of, you know, they loved, it, it, you're right, it is the stuff they loved or the things they valued most and the amount of time they had to dedicate to that. Mm. You're not drawing a little hard. You are stitching. There is a big difference in terms of time mm. invested in that 
in both of those tasks. And mm-hmm. there's a level of commitment to depicting certain certain images, certain verses. Yeah. There's a dedication, I think, yeah. With that being said, you obviously mentioned you're currently holding a curatorial role at the Royal School of Needlework. I'm going to ask you a few questions about that now. Please do. I'm really Um, excited. I should say, I did not say this at the beginning, but I want to say right now, the Royal School of Needlework is an incredibly special institution. And I'm just so excited to be a part of it because it does so much to keep this thing that I love alive. Totally. (laughs) So can you just start by telling us a little bit about its history as a school and obviously maybe some of the work they do now towards Mm. promoting and like we were saying, preserving embroidery and its practices? Absolutely. So the Royal School of Needlework was founded 151 years ago. Mm -hmm. Nice palindrome, same backwards and forwards, 151. Uh Love it. Um, So in 1872, it was founded to give employment to gentlewomen who needed money and occupation and also to keep the art of hand embroidery alive. So at this time, there was a fair number of women who were of, you know, genteel standing who needed money. They they weren't really able to rely on family funds. And it was viewed as an appropriate way of giving women a job before they got married. Mm. And alongside that, there was some fear, understandably, that the craze of Berlin wool work would wipe out other traditional hand embroidery techniques. Berlin wool work was basically like the early rendition of canvas work of of needlepoint. Sure. You know, yeah. Okay. It's this sort of pixelated designs, very Victorian, lots of embroidered uh, house slippers and pictures and fire screens and these sorts of. So then when you said pixelated, I was like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're yeah, talking yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Very Victorian. And it kind yeah. of became popular in the 1830s or 40s and it yeah. swept, swept the world. And that's all well and good. It's a really interesting style of stitch, but it involves like one stitch basically. Mm, mm. And there was some concern that other traditional hand embroidery techniques would not survive that popularity. So the RSN was founded out of kind of necessity, but also out of this desire to keep embroidery rich and diverse. Mm. And it still has that goal. It's considered um, the world center of excellence of hand embroidery and wow. it is this site where so much embroidery is produced and preserved and kind of made contemporary using historical techniques so the rsn is kind of divided up into sev- several parts there's the studio and the royal school of needlework studio um mm-hmm. undertakes new commissions of embroidery so it will do the embroidery for Kate Middleton's wedding dress. It worked on the the studio did a lot of the coronation embroidery. Yeah, sure. Also restore embroidery. So they are professional conservators. So if your family's cushion, chair cushion is falling apart, you will bring it to the RSN and they will stitch it alive for many centuries to come, which is lovely. There's also the degree. The Royal School of Needlework degree is a BA, Bachelor of Arts degree in hand embroidery. And Mm -hmm. that provides, I think, the world with new generations of students, of young people who are interested in stitch and uh, invested in keeping those traditional hand skills alive. So those are several branches. The third formal branch is kind of education more generally. 
So there's the degree, which is the formal BA program, and then there's education in the form of a certificate and diploma course. There are day classes, weekly classes, online classes, all sorts of classes, both for people on site at Hampton Court Palace, where the RSN is located, Mm -hmm. or virtually. And that is for people of all skill levels, and they can work with a variety of tutors. So there's a lot of different branches. Sure. But it's also more because I because it's 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 doing it all, and I also love to talk. There are <laughs> that, tell me, tell me. <laughs> okay. Oh, yay! Thank you. There are resources that are specifically catered to the stitching public or the public who's interested in getting into stitch. Yeah. And that is the RSN Stitch Bank. I mentioned it earlier in yeah. this episode. And it's basically a visual catalog of all of the embroidery stitches, which is a huge undertaking. But yeah. it's a website where it lists, it has these logos of all these different stitches and you can press all, you know, you can press a stitch and be guided, be told a little bit about the stitch, where has it been seen historically? And you get images, you get a step-by-step guide as to how to create this stitch. And then you get a video as well of how to, you're watching somebody do the stitch. Sure, and I think cool. that all of these kind of different facets of the RSN come together to create an organization that is blending together tradition and innovation. It's about keeping the art of historical embroidery alive, but making mm. it modern, making it accessible, making it available to people all over the world in all time zones. And it means that anybody from the world's best stitcher to the person who's never stitched before, everybody gets a slice of Mm. the past of embroidery and the present and a a kind of peek into the future. That's so cool. (laughs) I love the idea of the stitch bank as well. That's just, God, that's so much work went into that. (laughs) And it's still being... It's still being updated, so more stitches will come out at Christmas time, and it will just yeah. carry on. I Keep think growing. <laughs> as somebody who's like you know who's doing her own stitching, but also is constantly trying to identify stitches in historical pieces, the RSN Stitch Bank. Even before, way before I started working at the Royal School of Needlework, I was yeah. on the RSN Stitch Bank. <laughs> Life saving, truly, <laughs> truly. To have the little diagram and to be like, aha, aha, that drawing looks exactly like the stitch I'm seeing. It's yeah. We've talked so much about the human connection in there. This it is it's happening again, <laughs> but and it's also like it's the kind of material connection as well to connect that person stitching that that diagram of somebody making the stitch to this piece from what three hundred and fifty years ago with mm. the same stitch. Mm. I I love I love that connection. Yes, it's, it's all happening together. People being oh, brought together throughout the yes. ages. <laughs> yes, and I Great. love it. <laughs> I love it. So what role does education play at the RSN? Because you mentioned a little bit about they do, you know, various different levels of education. And how do Mm -hmm. you kind of collaborate with the instructors and students in your role to sort of um, help this grow? So it's early days in my job as curator, but it's I think it's a multi pronged sort of approach. Yeah. The collection, so my job is to catalog and digitize the RSN's collection of historic objects, of Mm -hmm. which there are many. And also, they're not all historic. There are some contemporary objects as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, My job is to catalog them and to make them available online for people. So I think the goal of that is very educational because it's about making this stuff accessible to anybody. My, My job, my work is about helping people get a better understanding of the kind of lineage of stitch through surviving objects. So Mm. 
whether they're a stitcher and now they can, that can inform their stitching. Maybe they're just interested in the history of stitch. Maybe they're, you know, looking for the work of a specific artist. It's all about broadening people's understanding of what textiles have been, of what embroidery has been, about where it was being made and when and what it looked like. So that cataloging is done with an eye towards public engagement and public education. And there's also, you know, an overlap between various parts of the RSN that lead to education for all sorts of people. Yeah. There's, you know, the the people on the degree course have contextual studies lectures. So as they are working to create contemporary embroidery, they're learning about the embroidery of the past. I will have some future overlap with the RSN Stitch Bank. The studio is working with both contemporary and historic pieces. And the courses are oftentimes, you know, they're educational, obviously, because you're learning <laughs> stitch, as is the BA. But those those classes for everyone mix together the past and the present as well, because a lot of sure. the courses that are taught are inspired by historical motifs or objects in the RSN's collection. I say it a lot because I think it's true. The RSN as a mixture of that tradition with the innovation. How mm. can you teach people about the past in the present in order to inform the future of Stitch? With all that in mind, obviously we're talking about the human element of it all. Yeah. Are there any famous embroiderers or individual embroiderers, either historically or more modern, that have influenced your research or the sort of work that you admire? So Susanna Perwich, who is likely the maker of this box that's at the mm -hmm. Los Angeles County Museum of Art, LACMA, that started me on this whole journey of 17th yep. <laughs> century girlhood, she's hugely important to me because... If it wasn't for that coat of arms, I probably wouldn't be here today. That mm. was my first huge kind of post-grad research project, my first published article. It really like mm. snowballed it and has led to so much of the work that I do today. So I'm very, very grateful to her, mm. to the Perwich family and to that survival because it was just seeing it by chance. It was just the fact that it has a coat of arms in it, these little clues. Yeah. But there's this other, um, it's a very different time period, but there is somebody who is um, a stitcher who I don't think about that often anymore, but was extremely influential for my work. And her name was Elizabeth Diamond Hull or Eliza Diamond Hull. <laughs> Great name. And she made a sampler in 1799 that's now in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. <laughs> and I interned at the Met the summer after I interned at the Nantucket Historical Association. Mm -hmm. And after the Nantucket Historical Association, I was just like, like living and breathing samplers. I was mm -hmm. like, how do I get information about this? And it was good timing because at the Met, my two bosses were working on an installation about samplers, about American and English samplers. And I was able to do some research and I was tasked with researching Eliza, as it says on her sampler, Eliza Diamond Hole. And she kind of unlocked all these additional parts of textiles, of needlework to me that I hadn't experienced thus far with mm -hmm. the Nantucket trees. The fact that I was able to look up her name and find her and find her, you know, pretty easily, partially because she was a Quaker and they keep great records. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> the fact that I was able to find, you know, like when she died, who she married, who her children were, that this one name on a sampler led to understanding a whole life 
genealogically mm. was really big for me. Mostly, I think, because it's the people, the, it's the people as the primary goal. Yeah. I didn't really realize it at the time that my interest in this stuff would be so tied to genealogy and to the study of these people's lives as a way of understanding how their stitching reflects the world in which they lived. But researching that, I don't know, finding her so finding her in the records fueled my fire and was able it gave me the motivation to find people who are much fur, like much harder to find in the in sure. the genealogical records. It it introduced me to this needlework aesthetic that I that was very well-known but not well-known to me at that point, which is this Quaker stitching aesthetic that happens at the end of the 18th century and is incredibly plain. But that sampler actually ended up indirectly leading me to my PhD because my PhD was about needlework that was totally at odds with that, the sort of stitching that Eliza Diamond Hole stitched. Mm. It was not this plain, very text-based, very monochromatic needlework it was bright and vibrant and incredibly over the top this this early Quaker stuff and as I was kind of starting my PhD stuff Eliza Diamond Hole was always on my mind as kind of the name the girl who started I don't know the sampler journey the Nantucket mm. tree extremely important but that was one piece of a larger puzzle and finding Eliza Diamond Hole and getting to know her through her sampler was many more pieces in that puzzle you don't realize that it's the humanity that you're looking for when you start you think oh I just like the clothes or I like this or yeah. and then actually you're like actually that no that's the part of it that is attaching me to this you know <laughs> that universality we're just I think we're all just looking for human connection and yeah. I think Cosmo and Textile they're really good at kind of presenting that human connection and I guess that's why it's so cool that it's still something that people do today because you think these people are making that for the future you know <laughs> it's that yes. human connection that you won't get on like an Instagram post or you know these sort of things it's not got the same connection to it no it's one but it is one of the things that I find really surprising about embroidery today is it's so popular but I think that people it just never crosses their mind that they are following mm. on you know a centuries millennia long lineage of people who have stitched for pleasure and adornment people don't realize that there was embroidery in the past I think mm. that's one of the reasons why I started my Instagram and my podcast because it was a desperation to get people to realize that this thing that's really cool now was also cool back then yeah that a lot of the motivations for why people stitch today are still were still the motivations hundreds of years ago yeah totally so obviously you know we know it was popular in the past it's just as popular now and in a different way mm. are there sort of techniques or materials that were used in the past that are different from what is done today or is the practice and the materials used quite similar I don't really know a lot about the minutia of that I think the biggest difference that I think about a lot I don't think every stitcher every historian of textiles will think about it in particularly this way but what drives my thought is linen the difference mm. in linen count. So linen in the 17th century, in this period that I study most often, was of an incredibly high thread count. It, it meant that it was very, very, very finely woven and that the stitches that you inevitably had to make were very small, mm. especially in comparison to today's linen, which is of a much, like there are very few, there are much fewer, many fewer, my God, there are many fewer threads, warp and weft threads in the weaves 
in comparison to the 17th century. And it means that for people who are trying to replicate 17th century embroidery, and there are lots of people who are, it's kind of hard to get to specifically that look or that feel. And that is similar with uh, threads. Sure. Thread is different from how it's wound to the colors. Some of the colors are hard to access because there are, you know, it's natural dyes versus chemical dyes now. It's what did these colors actually originally look like? I'm looking at the front of this piece and it's really faded. It's mm. one of the differences also is the variety of metal threads. We have a lot of the same metal threads today. We have things like bullion and uh, pearl, which are these kind of coiled metal threads that you mm. couch down onto a surface. And those existed in the 17th century and the 18th century, all this stuff. But I think it's about the variety and the craftsmanship that went into a lot of the elements of like that went into the supplies necessary for historical embroidery. That craftsmanship doesn't really exist sure. anymore or is very, very rare and expensive. So I think that it creates a different environment for this for today's stitcher, for today's mm. uh, needlework, for haberdashery customers today. You're going to have to seek out incredibly specific and highly skilled craftspeople who have to charge a lot of money for their yeah. skills. And obviously needlework supplies in the past, those were expensive too, but you could go to the shop and get this stuff. And you mm. can't really, like, now it's a much harder process to kind of obtain those materials. So it's more in, like, the materials rather than the actual techniques. It's, like, more... I th think so. There are stitches that... There are people out there, and I am not one of them, but I'm incredibly impressed by those people <laughs> who are, and I'm very, very grateful for them. Those people who analyze stitches in order to understand how they were done. And okay. occasionally they'll come up against a stitch that they don't know how it was done or it's contentious and people will disagree. Mm. Uh, so for the most part, we have a similar stitching vocabulary, but there are outliers and there are stitches that continue to confound. And that is complicated by the fact that stitches were called different things sometimes. You yeah. can get a, a tent stitch, but okay. you're going to get some stitch names that you won't be able to kind of compare to a contemporary stitch. And that means that there are orphan stitches in the 17th century that are unnamed. And there are stitches now that were probably made back then, but they had to have come up with a new name for them. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I think the stitches are the same. And I will have, I have to plug the RSN stitch bank here because they mm -hmm. are doing the Lord's work when it comes to hmm. stitches, historical and contemporary and they have created through this stitch bank, the Royal School of Needleworks Stitch Bank has collected 350 stitches right now from wow. all over the okay. world, primarily England, but it's going to get international soon. Mm. And it's, it, it shows visually the huge variety of stitch over time and place. And so while the early modern stitching and the contemporary stitching is largely similar in terms of stitches available, it gets complicated when you just consider how many stitches there are and how personal stitching is and what happens when the languages shift. Mm. Okay. Funky. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I guess, cause I kind of forgot that these things would have been documented, you know, people would have potentially written down what they were doing as well. And the words oh, change. No. Oh no, not <laughs> as know? much as you want them to. Basically. Really? Yeah. Um, I get that's just yeah. history, isn't it? No one writes anything oh. down. <laughs> oh, it's so, oh, it's so rough. There is just almost nothing out there. I would mm. say that one of the most helpful books from the 17th century about stitching 
you just wouldn't expect it. It's this book by Randall Holm called, uh, oh no, something Armory. Armory. Hold on, hold on. (laughs) The Academy of Armory. Yes, it's Randall Holm's Academy of Armory. And it's basically a list. It's kind of an encyclopedia of what different occupations are doing, the tools they use, kind of what they do in their daily work. Mm -hmm. And included in that is information about school teachers and embroiderers and Randall Holm lists all these stitches. Very cool. But some of those stitches, you will look at it and be like, I actually don't know what that stitch is. Yeah, I do not know mean? what he's referring to. <laughs> and then you'll look at a piece of embroidery from the same time period from, you know, the late 17th century. And you'll look at a stitch and you'll be like, I don't know mm. what that is. And so yeah. you get these words and these stitches that are kind of just floating unconnected. And it's really, really hard to connect the two. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. This is just opening my mind to so many things I never even thought about that's why I love, love. doing these episodes <laughs> okay great with my hugely long answers I'm so sorry no I love it I love it so obviously you've sort of hinted that the fact that you are an embroiderer you do some of your own embroidery we're talk, just talking about the challenges that you face are there any that you have encountered personally when trying to either replicate or restore or work with historic embroidery pieces mm. and you know what do you do to sort of overcome those because it's one thing dealing with it it's one thing having to actually fix it yes so I will say I don't ever restore pieces because I don't have those skills I'm next not a textile sure. conservator but I have tried my hand many a time at historical stitching I think my answer will be not what you want it to be but the answer is not necessarily a specific stitch mm. but it's tied to that the answer is time I don't have enough time to mm. do historical embroidery justice I have you know done some historical embroidery kits. I've done courses. I have a bit of knowledge in it, but I think the biggest problem is that these girls and women and professional stitchers today can dedicate many, many, many hours to stitch, to do it justice. And I Mm. unfortunately just don't have that time. And it means that I, I can't even like get to the basic historical embroidery, like really good level because I don't give myself enough time and have enough patience to dedicate to and that's a huge problem for me um and it genuinely stresses me out and i think it is an interesting thing of studying being lucky enough to study historic objects all day means that i feel like i have a deep deep appreciation of the material minutia of these objects i know Mm. what stitches look like i know how beautiful they are i know where things are going wrong i have a pretty good idea of maybe how long it would take for you to stitch this thing. What are the conditions in which you're stitching that sort of thing. But because I look at these incredibly highly skilled objects every day, the imposter syndrome is so real. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) Um, It's kind of, not only do I not have the time or the patience, unfortunately at this point to like to fully give historical embroidery, the time it deserves. Mm. It means that I am extra kind of wigged out. I get a little even more freaked out about it. Because I'm looking at this stuff all the time and it's the work of, you know, it's an 11-year-old girl's work and her work is amazing. Yeah, it, sure, kind of yeah. me, it gets me in my head and I'm kind of like, I don't know if I want to, you know, like I will never get that level and then it becomes this whole cycle. So mm. I, I kind of, I stitch, but I do a lot of my own thing. I'm kind of like 
doing this whole untrained just vibes sort of thing, which I really enjoy and inspired by historical motifs. But it is like number one on my to-do list to take some really long and intensive historical embroidery courses to force myself because I want, I obviously want the skills that they have. I, I need the skills that they have, but I never in my daily life give myself the time to do it. So I, I'm gonna, 2024, I was like, what is next? I don't even know. I'm hoping that in the winter of, you know, at the end of this year and into next year, I will be able to really dedicate some time because it's, it's what the stitching deserves. It's so difficult though. I, I find the same thing with clothes. Like I really want to learn how to properly make really well-made pieces but it's hard it's expensive it takes time and it's just trying to fit it around and so that when you're studying all these amazing pieces you're like oh I want to do that but you know I think a lot of people find that in any you know people that study literature you might think oh I'll never write a book like this do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. I think it's one of those things that probably happens a lot (laughs) I agree I do think that the embodied knowledge is incredibly important so I'm very very I think it's really important that I yeah. know how to embroider um, and that I know have some basic weaving knowledge that I have mm. the basic, you know, like the building blocks for the stuff that I look at. Because I think that if I didn't have any of that, it wouldn't really help. But I I agree that it's there's a, there are some obstacles monetarily, temporally mm-hmm. that get in the way of doing the kind of work with dress and textiles that we want to and the kind of work that the people who we study that kind of work that they were doing centuries ago decades ago we live in i'm living a very different life than a 17th century school girl and therefore i have different things to focus on but I, i i do hope that i can increase my skills and my knowledge through actual stitching yeah, yeah. No, I think it's something important to talk about, you know, because it's like you can be really knowledgeable about something, but it doesn't mean that you're as knowledgeable as someone in the past would have been or you have a different type of knowledge. You know, one doesn't negate the other. You can't, you know, it's like yeah. you have to appreciate the difference between that and you know one person might be really really good at the really detailed embroidery but their knowledge of the history of it might be completely different. You know, it's all about balance, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's all about bridging those different types of knowledge Mm. and bringing academics together with stitchers together with, you know, people who have the objects like everybody needs to be in communication because everybody brings a different set of knowledge of of a, a different kind of bag of information to the table. Yeah, totally. And, you know, one person can't have all of that. It's just like impossible you know there's only so much one brain can hold (laughs) 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 yeah sadly true (laughs) talking about the historical stitching specifically now Mm. can you explain the importance of preserving and promoting the art of historic embroidery and sort of the efforts you play in the modern day for that because obviously as you said in covid a lot of people took it on as a hobby and that's definitely more the modern techniques but do you think there's a danger then of the older techniques or the history of it sort of getting overshadowed well okay sort of two questions there (laughs) sorry (laughs) no problem I'm gonna go with the first one yeah hilariously my notes for it are in all caps because I clearly feel very passionately about (laughs) but I have a lot of thoughts I'm gonna yeah yeah go go for it I'm gonna try to (laughs) take you with me through my my strange mind on this I think that one of the most important things about preserving and promoting historical embroidery is that it's this thing that we keep talking about. It's the 
it's the human connection. Yeah. But one of the gifts of embroidery specifically is, I think, the the intimacy that it offers, the the glimpse into the intimate intimate details of human mm-hmm. life. It's what materials are these well-off girls having access to? What mm-hmm. is this professional stitcher doing in his or her workshop? What are the motifs that are of interest and how did those motifs spread around the world via pattern books? Where did those silks come from? Wow, that's coral. That's interesting. You must have a bit of money. What does it mean to be using this coral for this piece of needlework? That sort of stuff. Sure. It's, it's the humanity that comes with the, the the tiny, the real minute. And I think it's a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about throughout this. One of the things that is also really important is the universality. It's this by studying the past, we can understand the present, right? That's always what people say. But for needlework, I think it's really apparent because it shows that we've always been the same. We've always yeah. been interested in beautiful things and in beautifying our bodies and our homes. That obviously mm-hmm. like foundational, right? Yeah. But it's totally. more it's it's more than that. It's about us depicting things the same way a teenage girl in the past depicting a rainbow the same way as a teenage girl now yeah. would. Yeah. It, it's again that human connection, the fact that Despite every so many things in the world changing, so many different factors to contend with human nature when it comes to to art and to imagery and to relaying what's important to us, a lot of that stays the same. And also it's embroidery is that glimpse into the people who are oftentimes less easy to find in the archive and in paintings. Mm. Paintings are offer a very helpful visual look into the past, but it's a very specific visual look. It's yeah, yeah. specific with people offering, you know, specific poses and, and messages and symbols and all that stuff. It's yeah. not, that's not an every man's art. They're edited, basically. They're edited. <laughs> and needlework is not necessarily an every man's art either, although I, I think it was. I think that everybody had mm. the desire to adorn themselves with stitch, but a lot of it doesn't survive because not everyone was wealthy enough to make these decorative objects that didn't, that weren't used. So yeah. much of embroidery is gone because it was on clothes that were used again and again and again. It was used sure. in, you know, curtains and bed hangings and all this stuff that got reused that was stored in places that had lots of light. So they have disappeared, all these factors. Mm. But so needlework, I think, is a good way of finding groups of people who do not appear as easily in things like paintings in historic records. Mm. They're kind of, it's as a lot of historians say, like in the margins. And I find that with needlework, the people who are in those margins in the written word oftentimes come kind of out of the margins into the main body of the text when it comes to their embroidery. Mm. Even if it wasn't made by them, even if it was the embroidery that was in their house, it was made for them, their daughter made it, their mom made it, their sister, whatever. I think I view it as a direct line into people who are lurking a bit in the shadows elsewhere. Mm. It's so many good points. I love what you said about people have always had a history of wanting to beautify themselves. I think that's Mm -hmm. so true. You look back hundreds thousands of years and that's like something so consistent that we share with everybody around the world regardless of culture race anything it's just something that people have always wanted to do and it is really interesting that obviously embroidery and Mm. you know different types of practices are a part of that because you know embroidery can be done with golden thread you can embroider beads you know it's it's such a beautifying practice as much as it is something that maybe is telling a story I think that's really interesting and I think it's 
I think part of the power of embroidery is how accessible it is. Mm. So certainly lots of, you know, the, the fancy people were using gold thread to beautify themselves with this sort of glittering mm. stuff. Even when needles were extremely expensive, all you needed was a needle, one piece of thread and a yeah. piece of fabric. Those are pretty basic building blocks, which means that, you know, people many, many, many years ago, like really like thousands of years ago, yeah. do the same thing because these mm. are these are not necessarily technological, huge technological innovations. These are pretty basic tools, yeah. uh, which means that embroidery, I think it's always been for basically everyone. Mm. Also, I just realized that I completely forgot your second question and I don't remember it at all. And I'm sorry. Oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's fine. I think mean, no. every podcast episode, I'm like, I'm going to give you three questions. Good luck to you, right? Like, no, <laughs> it, no, it doesn't. I can't do it. No, I love it, and I and I love what you're saying about you know the idea that it can be and has been for everybody because mm. there's not many practices or parts of history that you see that happen. You know that that's can be quite rare really there was such a difference between you know people with money and people without money <laughs> but this being a practice that you know you didn't need a lot to be able to access and to have play a part in telling your story mm. and now the preservation of that is is, is really quite cool actually <laughs> I think it's really helpful that embroidery is like just one significant step up from sewing clothes mm, yeah Everybody at a certain point reached the conclusion of covering themselves. Not yeah. everybody, I mean, you know, like yeah, yeah, I, I get you. <laughs> around the world kind of reached that same conclusion. And if you are going to put together various pieces of fabric or animal skins or whatever, you're going to have to do that in the same way that you're stitching, like yeah. doing, sorry, doing embroidery, doing needlework. So it's really helpful that kind of once you reach that basic level of, all right, I've stitched together these various parts of animal and I'm covering myself. What if I use those same tools to make some, you know, a little line, a series of dots? Yeah. It's pretty, it comes pretty quickly after the kind of meeting the basic human needs. Mm, that's so cool. You've proved it's something that needs to be preserved. Thank you. <laughs> you need to work hard on preserving this. So it's important. It tells us a lot about people. Can you recommend any books, websites or other resources that people can go to explore to learn more about historic embroidery in general or specific pieces? You obviously have mentioned the Stitch Bank, but I bet there's a plethora of great places that they can go if people, you know, because people might know a little, they might know a lot, but there's always somewhere Agreed. new to go. I would. So, you know, I I would be remiss to not recommend going to the RSN's website. It's yeah. royal-needlework.org.uk. Okay. And on there, you'll find links to, of course, the RSN Stitch Bank, the RSN Social Media, which is also yeah. another branch of this sort of outward facing educational goal. You'll have information about classes. There are kits online. You know, there's online, there's like online courses. There's a lot there if you are interested in getting into stitching. When mm -hmm. it comes to the historical stuff, I have several tomes, several favorite texts. Mm -hmm. The first is a very classic book by Rosika Parker called The Subversive Stitch. And she wrote it in the 1980s. It's, you know, very second wave feminist. And it's about, it's like the first large scale critical assessment of women and embroidery sure. over time. And it's it was game-changing, and it remains game-changing. And I think if you were to read one book about embroidery in order to understand its historical importance over time, go with Parker's Subversive Stitch. 
Mm-hmm. When it comes to 17th century stuff, which I've talked about a lot on this podcast, my <laughs> Bible is called Twixt Art and Nature. And it's by Andrew Morrill and Melinda Watt. And it's a catalog that accompanied an exhibition that was on at the Bard Graduate Center of mm. objects from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, okay. uh, early modern embroidery. And the book is online for free. It might be like 25 cents now, but it's basically free. Yeah, it's basically free. Yeah. <laughs> basically free. It is brilliant. The colors are amazing. There are a bunch of really, really interesting and thorough articles at the beginning of it. And I, if you are interested in 17th century embroidery or like the world of early modern stitch, wow, I cannot recommend it enough. What are other ones? I think I would also recommend the catalogs that are produced by my other job, Whitney Antiques. So Mm -hmm. every year there is an exhibition at Whitney Antiques in the Oxfordshire Gallery. And that is that exhibition is accompanied by a catalog. And the catalogs are some of the most cutting edge research at any given time. Every Because it's published every year, different catalogs on different themes, you are getting some of the newest and most in-depth research on a sure. whole variety of subjects. So, you know, there are catalogs about, there's a catalog called Stitched in Adversity, and it's about needlework of the poor. It's, mm. you know, other, there's a book about samplers that have names, teachers' names and students' names. This year, we're coming out with a catalog about schoolgirl needlework in the 17th and 18th centuries that was kind of the world beyond samplers. So mm-hmm. it's caskets, the mirror frames, the little toys, all that sort of stuff. And it's about this Quaker girl. And I'm biased, obviously, because that's <laughs> my employers. But I was reading Whitney Antiques catalogs way, way, way before my time there. And I think that Whitney Antiques captures very beautifully the world of historic embroidery scholarship. And I do think that the RSN content captures very beautifully the world of contemporary stitch. Obviously I'm biased because these are my two, these are my two people. But if, even if I was not working for either of those people, I think those would be the, the, the organizations I recommended because they offer so much stuff in terms of the study of materials. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the biggest things that I've realized in my work as somebody who studies embroidery of the past is that you have to engage with objects. You have to Mm -hmm. engage with the stuff, whether it's at a museum or if you're lucky enough, you know, in a research session behind the scenes with objects, you've got to engage with things that are not just images on a computer screen. Those organizations do a very brilliant job of providing to the public opportunities to understand how stitching of the past worked and how stitching of the present works and how it kind of both of those things can come together to create Mm. a world in which you know needlework is still using the techniques of the past to be forward facing wait i'm so sorry can i recommend one more book yeah yeah yeah. no go for it i'm so sorry okay no no Uh, because it's right next to me and it is awesome Actually, two. I'm sorry. Why am I built like this? The first (laughs) is the book by Betty Ring, Girlhood Embroidery, um, Mm -hmm. which I mentioned earlier in this episode. If you are interested in American embroidery, that is the Bible. It rocks. It's so good. It's so thorough. And the fact that she did all that work without computers is mind boggling. Mm. I would recommend you get into it. It's awesome. The other one is Sampled Lives by Carol Humphrey, and it's an exhibition catalog that accompanied uh, an exhibition of samplers in 2017 at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. And Mm -hmm. that book is so thorough. Each chapter is on a different theme. I'm biased because one of the chapters is about early Quaker stuff, and that was really, really helpful and influential for my PhD work. Sure. But that is one of the newest large-scale books 
about embroidery and about samplers in particular. Mm. And I think it's a really good indicator of the state of the field when it comes to studying historic embroidery. Sure. Okay, now I'm done. I'm Great. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Isabella, for coming on the podcast. It was absolutely wonderful to talk to you all about the world of needlework and embroidery. And you have really sparked a new love and interest in me in the world of textiles and hand embroidery. And this is definitely something I need to find out more about and potentially learn to do myself. We'll see. I'm sure there's many of you listening who work on hand embroidery, samplers and things like that. And it's become quite popular recently, as we spoke about in this episode. And so I feel like I'm really missing out on something that's propelled into popularity recently and has such an intrinsic close association with the world of fashion history. As I said, if you want to find out more about the work that Isabella does, follow her on our Instagram page at Historic Embroidery. She posts so many wonderful examples of hand embroidery, needlework and other textile work in clothes, particularly on dresses, on samplers and on shoes, which is where you can see a lot of this embroidery done. You really won't regret having a little scroll through all the amazing things that she posts. So thank you so much again to Isabella for coming on the podcast. Everybody else, I hope you enjoyed it and I'll see you in the next one. Stay fab, everyone. Thank you.